Welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today, I'm talking to author Shawn Michaels about his latest release, Do You Remember Being Born? Shawn Michaels is the author of the novels As Conductors and The Wagers, uh, and his nonfiction has appeared in The Globe and Mail, The Guardian, Pitchfork, and The New Yorker. He is a recipient of the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the QWF Paragraph Hugh McLennan Prize, and the Prix Nouvelle Écriture, and he founded the pioneering music blog Said the Gramophone in 2003. Born in Stirling, Scotland, Sean lives in Montreal. At 75, Marion Farmer is almost as famous for her signature tricorn hat and cape as for her verse. She has lived for decades in the one-bedroom New York apartment she once shared with her mother, miles away from any other family, dedicating herself to her art. Yet recently, her certainty about her choices has started to fray, especially when she thinks about her only son now approaching middle age with no steady income. Into that breach comes the letter, an invitation to the Silicon Valley headquarters of one of the world's most powerful companies in order to make history by writing a poem. She's never collaborated with anyone, let alone a machine, but the offer is too lucrative to resist. So she boards a plane to San Francisco with dreams of helping her son. In the company's serene and golden mind studio, she encounters Charlotte, their state-of-the-art poetry bot, um, who has written countless poems in the last week, though it claims to only like two of them. Over the conversations to follow, the poet is by turns intrigued, confused, moved, and frightened by Charlotte's vision of the world, uh, by what it knows and doesn't know. Do you remember being born, it asks her. Of course, Marianne does it, but Charlotte does. Uh, This is a relationship, a friendship, unlike anything Marianne has known, and as it evolves, and as Marianne meets strangers at swimming pools, tortoises at the zoo, a clutch of younger poets, a late-night TV host, and his synthetic foam set, she is forced to confront the secrets of her past and the direction of her future. Who knew that a disembodied mind could help bend Marianne's life towards human connection, that friendship and family are not just time-eating obligations, but soul-expanding joys? Or that belonging to one's art means, above all else, belonging to the world. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Shruti. Thank you. Um, you know what? I don't even want to go to the first question. That is such a sprawling book jacket, m- more so than the ones that I'm really used to. <laughs> What's it like sitting there having me read that back to you? Well, I was thinking about, I was trying to remember, or I was not trying to remember I'm pretty sure that's the Canadian jacket copy, not the American. And so that my editor in Canada is Anne Collins. And I was listening to it and I was kind of impressed with, I haven't haven't kind of chewed on it in a while. And I was kind of impressed with the writing that bends towards, I'm like, that's quite, and it's not me who wrote it. So I was like, I guess it's Anne. And I was thinking, I was musing on editors and thinking about how, because I don't necessarily think of editors as writers. I think of them as, especially as readers and then that particular toolkit of someone who's really good at making a book better Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily kind of writing sentences Mm -hmm. but those sentences are pretty well crafted so I was thinking I was just thinking to myself oh you know Anne's a good writer yeah (laughs) or or someone else there in the marketing department but I think it's probably her um 
totally. I mean, she clearly is a good writer, but it's also like, you know, reading it back, I'm like, it's something that I like to do after I read a book, weirdly. Like when I'm mm-hmm. done on the last page, that's when I go to the back copy and like <laughs> yeah. re- read the summary. And it, it just takes on a whole new meaning as it just did for me having read the book. Um, but I was one thing I was thinking of, though, too, is I, I've kind of been caught in that caught in it recently. You know, I'm trying to I want my book to get find all the all of its proper readers, like the people who will enjoy and or find something in the book. I want to try to get the book in front of them. So I'm doing all of the kind of promotional circuit these days. But there is sometimes sometimes something uh, conflicting, you know, on the one hand, you're trying to sell a book. And on the other hand, you're trying to express the ideas in the book really truthfully. So I'm doing all these pieces right now that are about, you know, how I used AI to write this book and so on. When really the book came out of the story and then the using AI was, was kind of to try to feed that and make the book richer and, and more complex rather than I want to write a book with AI. Now, how, what should the story be? And so similarly, like jacket copy, it's funny it's finding this balance between how do you make this book inviting and compelling and then also how do you describe it truthfully and those aren't always in sync completely Mm -hmm. i I definitely have a question later on about you know how capitalism meets art um (laughs) yeah but um immediately upon you know learning about this book i i I wondered if if prior I, i mean you sort of just said that the um you know, the story started and, and AI sort of fed the story, was a vehicle for the story. But given its significance in the book, I'm wondering if prior or during, um, if you had ever read the publication of a series of interviews or discussions that uh, novelist Sheila Hetty conducted with an AI bot and then later published in the Paris Review, it, it was a series. Um, did, did, is that something you interacted with? In, in, in no, I mean, the book was basically done when that, oh, when wow. that, that series came out. Um, cause it's, that's, it came out, I feel like eight months ago, six mm-hmm. months ago. Mm-hmm. So the book was really, this book was being edited over the past year, but, um, you know, the finished, when I sold the book, it was quite finished. I mean, the, the, the editing process deepens and enriches the book in all these ways, but you know, it was the fifth, sixth draft or something of the book by the time it was sold at the beginning of last summer. So her, her, you know, chat GPT didn't launch till six months later and Sheila's piece didn't come out. And so I avoided it at first because of being in the thick of it. I was, it actually made me kind of frightened because I thought, Oh, if Sheila's working on a P on a book like this and it comes out, ahead of or around the same time as mine it's you know it makes it harder on the thing i've been working on all this time mm-hmm. so you know again under capitalism uh these things have different valences than they would otherwise um but then i got around to it yeah later um but it wasn't part of the it didn't it wasn't in the process and i found you know i could see i w- i i felt an affinity for sheila hetty at that moment when i read it because i said oh yeah she too kind of in the same way that i was four years ago saw something here that bore scrutiny you know being like rather than just like waving it off as some um weightless you know frivolous gizmo um she also kind of recognized some of the same um well, certain of the same uh, greater, it provoked a similar curiosity. So now, now knowing like that you did read it, I'm wondering like, 
What do you think made that conversation more suited towards an arts publication than, say, like a scientific or a research study? Why do you think that was published in the Paris Review, not like AI Daily or whatever? Well, so there's a really big distinction in my mind between even like the real, the chatbots of today and the large language models and my the fictional one in my story. Like my book is really about many things, but one of them is the relationship between the protagonist, Marion, and this AI called Charlotte. And in the book, kind of the premise of the book is that Charlotte is sort of, kind of, maybe slightly alive. And the creators of the current AI generations of AI do not believe their bots are alive, and they're not. Um, and so what Sheila Hetty is interacting with there is not a living thing. Um, and what is the distinction? You know, that's, that's a question for the philosophers. But kind of one of the premises of my book is that there is a distinction and that Charlotte is a bit more advanced than that. And so in my book, I think there's a parallel. Talking with these AIs today isn't actually interacting with a consciousness. There's no consistency to that consciousness. When you open a new chat, it's like memory is wiped clean. It's really kind of feeding you a random thing. If you ask it to tell me something different, like answer that question again differently, it'll be only too happy to. There's no consistent mind on the other side. And so in a way, it's a fictional mind. It's not a real mind. It's a fictional mind. Just as ironically, I think of the poetry in my book as fictional poetry. It's not poetry that I am writing from my heart uh, with full genuineness. It is fiction written by one of these two characters. And so I I would say that as much as Sheila's interactions on the Paris Review, that that tra chat transcript, like any number of chats I had with GPT over the past four years, um, kind of look like reported documentary interaction. It's sort of documentary transcript of someone interacting with <laughs> a fictional, like a, a simulation of a of a of an interlocutor, and so in that way, it's a work of fiction. Just ironically or interestingly, it's not Sheila who's writing the fiction; it's the software. <clears throat> what do you think of this rise of, of this boom in in not, like? It's so funny to me that in a rise of like the tech industry, just like in you know our real lives, it has resulted in a tech boom in, ter in terms of tech novels. Um, mm -hmm. It's definitely something that, like, I've been into these past two years, I would say. You, you can mm -hmm. see a lot of that on the guests that I've had on mm -hmm. the podcast. Um, what do you make of, of this rise of the tech novel? Well, I think that there's a really different... It strikes me that there's a different posture often with these novels than what, to my mind, which is maybe just, like, characterized by my age, the like previous real tech, I really think of tech novels around the era of microsurfs and like this thing in the, at the first tech boom of the, around the year 2000, when both of you, like both of us were much younger. I was just kind of coming of age at that time, literarily speaking. So I was, you know, Douglas Copeland and so on. And there was this real like sarcastic mocking satire of this clearly like jackpot like kind of fake bubble and I, I guess similar to how we think of crypto stuff in uh september of 2023 whereas i feel like now 20 years later as much as we've kind of, we did go through another wave of sort of satirical tech fictions on television and in books 
for most of us, we're interacting with tech so much and it's so much part of our lives. It's how we understand ourselves. It's how we understand our peers. There's no kind of like escaping and like pointing at something in the distance and being like, ha ha, look at those silly people with pets.com. Like we have to kind of point the finger at ourselves. And so these tech novels, as much as they might in some cases skewer corporations or cast them in these sinister lights and so on, there's a much deeper complicity and like uh, implication of the reader and the writer in the books that makes it feel pretty different. And um, I think it, I think they become really relevant because tech is one of the, like the primary ways that we experience the world in the year 2023 or, or many of us do I, that I do. And so it seems appropriate that there's novels that kind of muse on that. Um, but I also think that, yeah, I, I am looking now for tech novels that aren't just kind of sneeringly making fun of tech bros because I mean, just a lot of normal sensitive deep people have to work for tech companies <laughs> whether like directly or indirectly um and so yeah we don't have the same distance that um that that presupposes that's a really good answer sean i wasn't um very succinct i think um you explore a lot of late age in this novel, and particularly from a female angle in this book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I believe you identify as, as a man, and I'm, I'm wondering what drew you to this level of introspection. Um, yeah. Um, I think I was curious about what the world might look like from the perspective of an older woman. And I mean, I really feel like novelists, fiction writers, right, um, or certain kinds. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say poets, but it's I'm not so sure about poets. Poets are so concerned with their own subjectivity much mm -hmm. of the time, whereas fiction writers kind of off, more often project things out to other characters that are unlike themselves. Anyway, I, uh, I was curious about that perspective. And I think I also felt after t publishing two books, the courage to try to write a character that was farther from myself. I mean, I feel like the risk whenever you're, the farther you get from your own lived experience, the more, the, the greater the chance that you, you, what you do just like sucks and doesn't like ring true and doesn't feel authentic. And I still have that preoccupation with this novel, but I felt kind of brave enough to take up the challenge and to try. Um, and so it's not that I had never wanted to do something like that before. It's that I felt like I might be able to um, dare do it or dare face also the criticism of, of, of kind of accepting where it falls short of feeling true. You know, similarly, what was the appeal of creating a quote unquote bad mother? Mm. I mean, I was, so I have a seven-year-old boy and... I have the luxury of being a full-time writer, scraping by, living here in Montreal, doing, you know, <laughs> hoping my landlord isn't going to evict us, all that kind mm -hmm. of classic stuff, but kind of making it work. But I've certainly know a lot of writers who don't have that luxury and have had to 
reckon not just writers my age, older writers um, who kind of feel have made sacrifices over the course of their life, of their writing life, sacrifices to maybe not be the writers they wanted to be because of work. And then you also hear from time to time about people who weren't able to be the writers they wanted to be because of family, or you hear stories of famous writers who were terrible parents or terrible partners um, in order to kind of preserve the sanctity of their genius and of their artistic practice. And as a culture, we kind of forgive this and say, well, of course, it's a balance. You know, they were a jerk, but um, for the sake of the art, (laughs) it's okay. Um, And while in the kind of Me Too or post Me Too era, I think we've become better at um, considering like real forms of violence, maybe saying, well, it's maybe it's not acceptable to be violent, even if you're a great artist. We still seem to accept a certain kind of neglect or a certain kind of just more shallow shittiness as being an acceptable cost for that artistic genius. And I had been thinking about all of these things. And I thought a little bit as well about the poet Marianne Moore after reading her biography. And she was someone who was kind of alone all of her life. And I wondered about the decisions that go into it. Sometimes it's not a decision you make, but sometimes it's the decision you make. And I feel like, again, society has this um, privileged space for artists where we kind of think that, well, yes, to be a great artist, those are the sacrifices perhaps you should make. And so I, as a parent, reflecting on this was kind of, in some cases, pushing back and rejecting this idea that my art would be improved by being a bad dad. (laughs) or by being even a bad partner or having fewer interactions with the world. I think I I taught, I did a semester at McGill as a writer in residence and a writing teacher um, four or five years ago before the pandemic. And it used up a bunch of my time, but I entered into these relationships with students and I could see how that was draining and bad for, you know, having as much time and energy to pour into a manuscript. But on the other hand, the way it nourished working like interacting with younger writers fed and like illuminated or maybe not illuminated. Allume, they would say in French, lit me up. Um, and so I wanted to think about the book as kind of considering this cliche of the writer, the writer's kind of strength being from the source of their strength being their kind of purity and seclusion. I want to challenge that. And I also thought it was interesting in the way that AI might be a direct challenge to that. The idea of having, like novels aren't usually written collaboratively. Poems aren't usually written collaboratively. But if you have a machine on your computer, let alone like a consciousness on your computer that can kind of enter into conversation with you and is willing to help you with your work, how does that challenge that solitary idea of artistic genius? And does it maybe do it in a good way? Like, is it not all bad? That idea of opening oneself up? I sort of love Zadie Smith's uh, take on the on the on the matter of of being a novelist uh, with children. Um, mm-hmm. She says there's just no choice. She's like she she almost <laughs> says it's like the best thing that's that's ever happened to her. She doesn't say it in that way, but it's sort of like I only have nine to twelve mm-hmm. in the morning to write, so there's just no more procrastinating. There's no more. Let me make a coffee. Let me not do it. Let me think about it more. There's just mm-hmm. these are the hours, and I'm going to get it done. But- I think in some way, I mean, I haven't read, I don't think I've read the piece you're referring to, but I've been, like, I think particularly just being like, 
a straight cis guy mm -hmm. with a kid, I've been provoked over time by thinking about all the history of there being a choice. Like I remember marveling when I was a dad with a kid, a baby strapped to myself. I'm like, some people really just don't do, like some guys just don't do this. Or they're like, I have to go right. to work. See ya. Like you do the mothering mom, you know? And mm -hmm. there is a lot of that. And the, and I, I kind of found it repugnant, but then was like, how would, like what would one's heart look like? And how would I get to a place where I would feel that that was a responsible choice to make? Right. Um, when Marianne converses with, you know, the AI bot Charlotte, um, you use the highlight function to distinguish between mm -hmm. Marianne versus Charlotte in the in the text. I'm not sure if it's dissimilar in the U.S. version. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also phrases scattered throughout the book where Charlotte is not speaking necessarily mm -hmm. that are also highlighted. Um, you know, it definitely seems like an Easter egg for the reader. So maybe you want to leave it at that. But I sort of wanted to ask you what's happening there. <laughs> so the, it isn't it isn't a full easter egg there the author's note at the end tries to kind of express some of this mm -hmm. but so some of this book was written with help from ai um i worked with earlier versions of gpt and then also some custom soft fine-tuned software and so ultimately all of charlotte's poetry in the book Basically, I had the idea that I was going to write a book about, I wanted to write a book about a poet who works with an AI, who makes art with an AI, and struggles with, like, what does that mean for her art? What does that, how does that mess with her? What is it? How does she fight with that? How does she grapple with that? And then I thought, well, it would be a very interesting experiment if I, too, made that my challenge, where I, too, was going to make a work and use AI, and thus I had to grapple with that and challenge, and the reader did too. And so I began to do it, but then I tried to think of, well, I didn't want to just write a book that kind of sneakily and kind of creepily and, and like synthesized and fused my writing with AI writing so that you, they were indistinguishable, because to me, like, <laughs> I, don't, I want to be understood, well, I want my work to be distinguished from machine work. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I wanted to kind of have the, I liked the idea of the book being contaminated or infiltrated in this way and for the reader to gradually perhaps have the sense that it was contaminated or infiltrated in that way, whether that was moments of repugnance or whether it was moments of delight. And so I had this initial, yeah, the highlighting is in both editions. It was an idea I had for the formatting early on. And I always kind of thought maybe designers at the publishers would come up with better ideas <laughs> of how to represent it. But the long and the short of it is that all of Charlotte's poetry in the book is generated by AI, edited very heavily by me. And then there's also passages of the main narrative, of the main narrative prose that are generated by AI. And I thought that by having Charlotte always in this highlight, but usually in this different font, it would kind of signal to the reader that when that highlighting appeared elsewhere, that there was some link between it and if not Charlotte, then AI in general. And I was very happy with kind of the reading that you're able to have. Like I was happy with the level of confusion and speculation. Like I liked the idea of provoking confusion, speculation, wondering in the reader, um, rather than just spelling it out at the beginning. Um, because I want, I mean, that's part of the, I think that's where we're going is to a place where we're wondering about the AI infiltration of the work we enjoy. I think we'll be headed there. I mean, would it be too simplified to say, because that's sort of what I'm hearing, <clears throat> that the um, the point is to sort of have the reader be like, wait, did Sean write this or did 
an AI, right? Or the yeah, chat like, GPT. It was like, wait, who, what's happening here? Yeah. Like, is there something else involved? And then those interventions become more and more frequent as the book goes on. And then towards the end of the book, spoiler alert, there's like a little chapter that's kind of all these weird AI interventions mm-hmm. and is kind of like the machine, do, do androids dream of electric sleep kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In the early pages of the book, immediately one of my favorite lines I read, um, it was just so particularly lush, was, and once you have found a way to be natural, the rest of what's important can be layered over top. Lucidity, beauty, force. Is this sentence saying aging begets grace? Wow, that's, I mean, no, but I like what you (laughs) Uh, what you just invented using it as a, that's a pretty beautiful interpolation, Shruti. Uh, I mean, I think you're right that it implies that aging begets grace in that way, yeah. Mm -hmm. You immediately said no, though. Oh, just, I mean, no, I don't think it's implied, like, (laughs) I don't think that was my, like, that's all I was trying to express in that passage. Right. But, uh, that's all I mean. Yeah, no, but I, agree. I think it does. Yes, it's that idea that, I mean, I think that's, it's one of the things that I find weird about art is that art, like what is rec- the necessary and sufficient criterion for art is that it's like a thing that's there, like the the material, you know, like a painting with paint on it, I mean, a canvas with paint on it, a series of sentences that tell a story. And then on top of that is this like beauty and grace and all this stuff. But if you don't have that sufficient thing, it's not there. And confusingly, sometimes the thing that inspires all these thoughts of beauty is like random and arbitrary and kind of fake. Sometimes it's not done with a real intention. Sometimes you find something deep that was actually made slapdash. I always think of like, you know, piles of rocks by the shoreline or something. And there's Mm -hmm. days where you walk by, you're like, oh yes, time, you know, humanity. We've all like these markers of people who have been here for hundreds of years. It's so profound. And then other days, just like someone made a pile of rocks, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's something about like uh, ready-made art and so on as well, where it's like, this isn't art until it you kind of kind of project meaning onto it. And I think AI presents a challenge to this because AI can make all these pretty looking things that look like art, whether images or text. And then we can read meaning and beauty and grace into them. Does that make them profound? Like just that you can project that into it, you know? Anyway, these are all provocative questions. But I think what you said about aging, yeah, the idea that just the fact of aging, the material reality of that then becomes a really extraordinary and deep thing. Do you identify as a poet? No, (laughs) no, I don't. So tell me more about why you use that medium to explore. (laughs) Well, I realized belatedly. So my second book, The Wagers, uh, I set out with that. I really wanted to one of the things that book's about, it's a book about luck, it's a book about stand-up comedy, it's a silly kind of surrealist adventure story, but I also wanted to kind of write a book that thought about being an artist and the tough thing of being a mediocre artist and like kind of keep so much good art is only produced by kind of carrying on in your practice. And that's really hard. That actually means you spend a lot of time being like not very good and that's a weird place to sit. 
Um, but I remember when I was working, starting to think about the wagers, I said, well, I literally said out loud to, to a couple of people, you know, I want to write a book about being an artist, but I couldn't, like, I'm not going to write about being something lofty like a poet. Like, it's too on the nose to write about being an artist and write about being a poet. So I tried to find the shabbiest form of art I could, which was, in my mind, stand-up comedy, um, the most disreputable art form. Um, but suddenly here, I think several years later, I was like, <laughs> that thought of like, I wouldn't do that became kind of almost attractive mm -hmm. in a way, the thing that I said I couldn't do. Um, so I became interested in that. I was also really interested after learning about Marianne Moore. I also think my, my aunt is the amazing poet and novelist Anne Michaels. And I grew up in her, in awe of her as my aunt, the poet. And so I think there's some of that that I've always been fascinated by the occupation of being a poet. Um, but I also know poets here and I find that they have such kind of a distinct kind of clairvoyance and there's something so in certain ways more pure about their practice than fiction writing, which is so concerned with narrative and, and even commercialism and all this stuff. And so all those things kind of mingled, I think. The book's plot is essentially driven by this relationship between capitalism and art. Um, Marianne, you know, agrees to essentially, quote unquote, sell out uh, to this large tech company for the sake of providing financial security for her son. What do you think happens to art when it's commodified? I mean, art, when it's commodified, enters is by when it's commodified in this way becomes a um, commodity that is in competition with other commodities because that's how markets work and consequently um, artists also must enter into competition uh, as producers of commodities we're, we're these tiny industrialists these tiny tycoons with our factories producing one I produce one novel every four or five years but that's what this factory does and I have to compete with the other factories that produce uh, novels of greater and lesser quantity or quality um, perhaps more frequently or less frequently and I hate that and um, I think about it a lot I remember I, I for years have worked as a music critic and I remember before my first book came out I had a I have all these friends who are musicians, and so for years I would talk to them about the, you know, the how wonderful music criticism was, and how it lets us think more deeply and engage. Well, I mean, good music criticism, you know, it's like that's it, it kind of like book criticism, like all these forms of criticism, it like makes a work. Uh, hope, hopefully helps kind of unpack it and and make legible one person's reading or hearing of a work and and, sh and kind of complexify other people's hearing or reading of a work and all this good stuff. And my musician friends were like, yeah, but like, <laughs> uh, 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 this was in the heyday of Pitchfork. I remember like a bad review can tank my career, you know, like literally mean that I don't, that I can't pay rent. And I was like, no, I poo-pooed that a little bit in this like life of the mind. And then when my first book came out, I suddenly was like 
viscerally aware of the fact that my work didn't exist in this like life universe of the mind. It was like a commodity on the market. And I wanted good reviews and coverage in order to sell copies, which resulted in, you know, future book deals or, or whatever the material rewards of that, that allowed me to just keep at it. It wasn't like, I don't want to be praised for genius. I just want to like, like, let me keep doing this. Let me uh, not have to get a certain kind of other job and so on. And so just the fact of these things being on sale and it and makes them in competition with each other and the fact they're in competition with each other gives artists this all these other sets of incentives and disincentives and complicating emotional it's just horrible it's it's like it gives me more sadness than than almost anything else in in like whatever in in art in trivia in the trivial land of art and uh and i wanted to chew on that a bit um i mean i thought that there was uh, there's this question of uh there's an interaction that charlotte and marion have in the book about being a tulip uh, about money and being in competition and and there's this idea that i, I am not a like it, are we flowers where my Okay, I'm getting into like ridiculous analogies, but like, I love it. does I love my it. does my fl flourishing come at the cost? Is this a zero sum game where it comes at the cost of the flowers next to me, or not? Or does my flourishing and the flourishing of a common garden, like how much are those things in line? How much can we be in solidarity as fellow workers all trying to succeed, or how much is that like impossible, material impossible, materially impossible because we're exploiting one another for to, toward those ends. You know, I think about what's going on in publishing right now and some of the striking or, or the writers on strike. And then meanwhile, like me just trying to get my piece. And it's like, it's horrible. Like, why can't we just really be in solidarity? And it's like, well, everyone listening knows the reasons. Yeah, because capitalism, um, because capitalism, period. Um, early on, Marianne, um, early on, Marianne muses over what it is to be a human, <clears throat> and she—I mean, that's the whole book. But great question, Sri. But um, and she identifies, but she at, at a certain point she identifies it as a sense of smallness, um, and sort of says that Charlotte's, you know, sort of, sort of problem is her overarching quality. Um, the fact that she's so overarching precisely negates any sense of humanity. Um, I sort of, it made me wonder, like, why is being small so key to being human? You know, like, aren't material objects like an iPhone small? But they're not. They're, they're huge. And we are, we are tiny in comparison. And, and, and why, why is that so humane? Well, I think some of that, that um, thought did come from playing with some of these AI tools, actually, because... If you've configured these things properly and you're using them well and they're advanced tools, you know, if I give it pages and pages of my work and then ask it to generate the next sentence of the work, it comes up with a surprisingly plausible sentence in a voice not unlike mine. And then you can say, and it might not be very good, like it might not be the one I would choose, but then I can say, okay, do it again. And then five seconds later, it's done it again. And I can say, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. And, you know, soon we're going to have things where I just push a button once and then it can give me a hundred or a thousand or 10,000, like li literally or 10,000 suggestions of the next sentence. And faced with that, it's kind of over, like one, the sense of one's creativity or even of one's 
um, soul, like it's overwhelming. You think this is a more creative thing than mm -hmm. I am, mm -hmm. unless you kind of retreat to this idea that, well, who cares about quantity, right? It's about mm -hmm. discernment and choosing. And then also, maybe it's not even about discernment. Maybe it's the fact that if I try to think of um, a name for this character or an image in this moment, I'm like just searching through my memory of people I've encountered and images I've that have occurred to me or that I've experienced in the world. And maybe it's the limitations of my life and the like scarcity, the, the, the mere 41 years I've been alive and the people I know that actually, that specificity that make my, make me, well, obviously my specificity makes me unique, but maybe that, that uniqueness is also like the source of, um, I don't want to say power is the source of, um, like what sets, what what makes uh, my art worth something next to someone else is just the the kind of the difference of it, or the the narrowness of it, mm -hmm. and. It's a kind of confusing thought, but it becomes like a, <laughs> a helpful kind of resting place when you're feeling afraid. And I think it's an interesting also retort to like some of the, 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 you know, the, the fears that quote unquote diverse, you know, diverse books are like some new problem, you know, some problem in publishing where, uh, you know, we're becoming, all we're interested in is like, finding unique voices and it's like well no all we are interested like truly all we are and should be interested in, in is like finding unique voices it just doesn't necessarily always um uh mean the things that the like right-wing people would kind of smear it with it's like find that unique voice and it's also what the current version of ais that you see like cannot do because you know chat gpt is this generic like the most generic they're trying to make it the most generic reliable like bland omni voice you can have and it has no limit has no unique experience narrow experience and so in some ways yeah we, well, i'm trailing oh, off <laughs> no no but we we are all unique voices i mean some more talented and perhaps more interesting than others, but that's, that's sort of it, right? Like, that's what we are. That's what it is to be human, this, like, individual subjective experience. Yeah, you know, Shri, when I was at, when I uh, was at university, I remember, like, I, I did a uh, class in humanistic studies, and the final exam was, like, an essay exam in class, and the question was, what does it mean to be human? Uh, you know, write six pages, please cite your sources. It was an open book exam. And I remember just sitting there thinking, like, what? Hmm. And I decided, well, the easiest essay to write is just, uh, is to say that what it means to be human is to be miserable, like, to use the whole miserby, mis misery <laughs> angle. Like, that's the easiest, most defensible, persuasive essay. And so that's what I wrote. But I do think that, you know, there's a short list of like, what does it mean to be human? You could say, well, misery, you can say, you know, as I don't know, aspiration. Uh, there's a few different hypotheses, but I think that the idea of, yeah, scarcity, that like unique, the like things that is uh, unique to your own particular démarche, like your own particular progress through the world, the things you saw and others did not see. Is important, and then it becomes really exciting when you then think of the the chorus of that, which is like you and all your brothers and sisters and siblings who 
have all had your unique walk through the woods and now you can stand together and tell each other of what you saw. And like that to me is like quite a beautiful image. Um, on page 125, Marianne says, there's a line I read once by an Egyptian poet whose name I cannot remember, that a diary's function is not to show you who you are, but who it is you have ceased to be. Uh, did this book do that for you? Did it serve as a diary? Um, sometimes. I mean, in fiction writing, for me, there's a an element of diary and kind of sublimate, like sublimated or trans transferred autofiction. But there's other elements that are about role play and or or like trying to channel other people of of like deep empathy and um, yeah, a more empathetic thing rather than rather than knowing oneself trying to know others and trying to imagine oneself in their shoes and so in some ways i think that's anti-diaristic um so i think a bit of both i mean i i feel like if you uh if one you can imagine marion the 75 year old poet in her room at the computer with charlotte and there's this kind of like ghost superimposition of her of me in my studio with a computer writing the book and they're both kind of on top of each other in this kind of blurry way, but they're not the same thing. <clears throat> Could you describe the Nat Ministry like really briefly to readers? Yeah. So the Nat Ministry is uh, an amazing well, uh, uh, school of thought invented um, by what's her name? Um, let's be in a moment, Trisha Hersey in Atlanta. Um, and so she's the Nat Bishop. And so she's, um, she's published a book and a tarot, uh, produced a tarot deck or like, a yeah. And, um, it's this school of thought about rest and about the importance of rest and of like rebelling against the hustle culture that is prevalent. I think is particular, pre particularly prevalent. She said in some of the African American kind of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, ideologies and, um, but to kind of reject that and to say that we deserve to nap and to just take time for ourselves and to, that that is this radical act, this radical kind of anti-capitalist or anti-lots-of-isms anti um, act. And uh, I found it really profound. As do I. It's sort of, yeah, that's what, all I needed. I just saw like a short description of it. Mm -hmm. It serves as a mic drop to me, uh, to, you know, many folks out there. In one conversation with Charlotte, the bot identifies finishing a sentence as the equivalent to predicting the future, like coming up with the next word <laughs> yeah. is, is exactly that. Yeah. Um, as a novelist, do you agree? Is that what novelists are? <laughs> <laughs> Prophets? Uh, <laughs> of a well, fake future, but sure. You know, I got interested a couple of years, I guess it was like, yeah, I got interested in these things called super forecasters at some point. Um, do you know about those? It's a job. Like people have, yeah, yeah it's like an occupation. Like, there's people who, because you could test how good people are at predicting the future. Because you can mm -hmm. literally like give them a quiz where you're like, do you think the cost of oil is going to go up or down in the next six months? Do you think there will be war in Ukraine? Do you think there will be peace in Ukraine? Do you think, mm -hmm. you know, who's going to win the, the World Cup? Any of these things. And then you can check their, their predictions. And to my 
um, astonishment. There's people who are really good at this without, like, it's not because necessarily they're subject experts. I mean, obviously, like, someone who follows soccer very closely is going to be better, better at predicting the next World Cup than I am. But even there's people who are good. It's not because they're psychics. It's that they're good at kind of, like, in, interpreting the information they have and kind of coming to reliable answers. And so there's people who have who are then, like, they participate in these, like, questionnaires and these challenges, and then the ones who are really good can get hired for these agencies that just advertise to companies and whatever we can tell the future. We'll use our team of super forecasters and tell you what will happen. And I think there's something odd and weird and about the idea that some people are good at processing information in that way. And I have to think that certain kind of fiction writers, the fiction writers whose work it is, is to kind of realistically imagine unreal realities. Um, that some of those people have not the same, but a similar capacity, like a, a talent that could be used in some other ways. I mean, a lot of them don't at all. Um, and I think at times I've like, uh, I've like to like, um, if I flattered myself into thinking that I'm good at processing information and imagining, and then reality has borne out the fact that I am not like I grossly overestimate my abilities. Um, but I do think that there's something really interesting that, some writers do sometimes of this like intersection between truly kind of like trying to thoughtfully uh, invent what should happen next, what what in the story, mixed with this kind of like intuitive intuition thing of like what could happen next, like kind of randomly, and the synthesis of those two things is kind of is 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 interesting and reminds me of of, you know, of, of actual fortune tellers who are both trying to, you know, presumably you try to, when you're examining someone's palm, you're trying to guess, you know, what do I know about this person and what can I predict based on what I know? And then you're adding in a dash as well of the, of the kind of mystical. On page 170, there's a line. It reads, when you read one of my poems, don't ask, what is this about? Ask yourself, what is it like being here? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan of your early days as a music journalist myself, mm -hmm. uh, founding the music blog Said the Gramophone. Um, it was very formative for me, uh, you know, in, in my early experiences. Um, and aside from poetry, would you apply this question to the act of listening to music? Yeah. What is the line again? Don't ask what this is about. Ask. What is, instead of asking, what is this about? Ask yourself, what is it like being here? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a nice, that's a, that's a lovely uh, association. Yeah, I mean, I as a listener, and even as a music journalist, have always like been very, have been oddly disinterested in the circumstances of musical creation. Like, I'm not the person who's mm -hmm. interested in, like, tell me about the studio, tell me about, uh, like, even, like, the socio-historical stuff. I'm just mm -hmm. not enough of a nerd to Same. always care. Same. Yeah. Like, I really just, I care about the, like, weird personal experience of being having your heart blasted open by a song or of someone else you know a song that doesn't do that to me but hearing you narrate how that does it to you can change the way I hear that music and I think that there's something very much in common that music and poetry have for that where the problem you know a lot of poetry is so maligned by people who quote-unquote don't get it or abstract art and I always want to kind of um, I want people to find what the practice that 
uh, works for me, which is like you go into a gallery and you stare at a big canvas and you just try to see like, does this hit me? Like, what does this do to me? What is it? And rather than be like, what is this about? As if there's a correct answer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're sort of coming full full circle um, with this last question to our the start of our conversation. But um, what does having a child do to the passing of time? It makes you so awake to life. You know, going the reason one of the reasons I think I like to travel and a lot of people like to travel is the feeling of like acute uh delight that happens with the most like boring things. You know, you walking down a street in, I don't know, Buenos Aires or Taipei and you see a dry cleaner and it's got like it's and you're like, whoa, look, an Argentinian dry cleaner. And like, oh, look, a Taiwanese um, uh, breakfast shop. You know, it's just like exciting. There's a look at that cat. It's a, we're in Lisbon and there's a cat. Uh, and it's just like it's beautiful. And like life is just so much more vivid and and alive in those moments. And I feel like having a child allows the world, the humdrum mundane world, much like, I mean, I've often, I've also said before, I think living in Montreal does that for Anglophones, where it just adds that little note of strangeness Mm -hmm. to the city Mm -hmm. that makes things feel um, uh, like makes us encounter the more sharply, more abruptly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, for me, having a child is transforms the world and makes it easier to, to, be alive, fully alive in it. Thank you so much, Sean. Uh, this was wonderful. Listeners, uh, you can pick up a copy of Do You Remember Being Born at your local indie bookseller? Um, and I hope you do. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> Thanks. It was a pleasure. <laughs>